Turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And I'm going to begin by reading uh, a text I probably don't need to read to you because it's perhaps the most well-known verse in all the Bible. But I'm going to begin by reading it. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we as we look at this word, the word written by John at the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, the word spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ, this word about you and who you are and what you've done for us. We ask that you would illumine our minds, give us understanding, give us hearts to believe, and cause us to worship you, to proclaim you to those who do not know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said at the beginning, John 3.16 is probably, if not um, the most well-known verse in Scripture. And I, I do plan for us to look at that text in a moment. But before we jump into John 3.16, I want to explain what I intend to cover over the next three weeks and give some rationale for why I'm covering this topic. The next three weeks, I intend to speak about our triune Lord. I began our series on missions last week by reviewing the doctrine of Scripture. And I really was emphasizing that Scripture is our authority in missions. And now I want to turn to the doctrine of our triune Lord and emphasize who our God is and what our God has done. Please understand that that missions is about making God known. Making God known to those who have suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness and thus who are condemned in their sin and eternally perishing. Thus, our missionary efforts, please hear this, our missionary efforts will only ever be as faithful as our doctrine of God and his gospel is. If you do not get God and the gospel right, whatever you are doing in your efforts to fulfill the Great Commission, it is not what Jesus has commanded. And Jesus understood that. Look, before we look at John 3.16 in depth, look at Matthew chapter 28. We'll turn to the Great Commission, a passage that we'll look at frequently over the next nine weeks now. And look at verse 18. Jesus has met the disciples on a mountain in Galilee after his resurrection, And he's come to this passage we famously call the Great Commission. And look at what Jesus says. 
all authority, verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, who gave Jesus this authority? So you got to ask questions when you come to the text. Who gave it to him? The Father. Why is Jesus, here's a second question, why is Jesus worthy of being given sovereign authority over the heaven and the earth? Well, because of who he is. He is the Son, the Heir, Christ the Lord. Now look at verse 19. Baptizing them, in other words, these nations, go therefore make disciples of all nations. Look what it says. Baptizing them in the name, singular, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One singular name, yet three persons being named under that one name. Now, here's a question you ought to ask. Why should all the nations be baptized in this name? It's fascinating because we know that when we're commanded to go, therefore, and make disciples, that go is a participle. And if you want me to get really technical, I'll try to boil it down. Go is a participle that attends the circumstance of the main verb. The main verb is an imperative or a command. Make disciples. So go is, if you will, partnered with that circumstance of a command to make disciples. So go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now here's the first participle of means. How do I make disciples? How are disciples made? First, baptizing them. Baptizing them. But baptizing them what? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And here's the question. When I'm out making disciples of Jesus, why should all the nations be baptized in this name? Why should they be identified as belonging to and united to this single name with a trinity of persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Why are we baptized into, and why are we commanded to baptize others into the Trinitarian name? This is the means of making disciples. In fact, it's the first prescribed means of the mission of disciple-making. The first prescribed means of the mission of disciple-making is to identify those who repent and believe with the name of our triune Lord. Does this not tell us something fundamental to the missionary imperative? How do we even understand what Jesus is commanding us in the Great Commission to do if we don't know the doctrine of the Trinity? In whose name are we baptizing these people? Who are they becoming disciples of? Look at verse 19 now. Uh, Sorry, the second part part of verse uh, verse 20. First part of verse 20, I apologize. Teaching them to observe or obey... All that I have commanded you. Teaching them to obey all or everything I've commanded you. Here's a question that ought to come up. Who is Jesus that we should teach all nations to obey him? Who is he? Well, he's the son, the Lord, the heir. And teaching them to obey him is the second prescribed means of disciple making. 
The first prescribed means of disciple-making is baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The second means of disciple-making that's prescribed is teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded them. Who is he that they should obey him? Now look at verse 20, the second part of it. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here's a question that will pop up. Who is Jesus that he can be with us always, even to the end of the age? And given that we later read that he ascended into heaven, how is he able to be with us always? Sounds like an empty promise when someone ascends to the right hand of God. So how is he then able to be with us always? And thus we come to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So the Father has given Jesus all authority. Jesus the Son is now the Lord who has all authority. And Jesus is always with us by the Holy Spirit. In other words, making known the identity of God is central to our task and missions. Central. We are making him known. God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is one essence in three persons. And while there's much more I could show in Scripture to demonstrate the triunity of God, for our purposes in this series, I intend to take this as a settled article of our faith. The God to whom we're referring in this entire series in missions is the God of the Bible, as articulated in the historic creeds of the Christian church. Listen, folks, the church did not create those creeds because they were a bunch of eggheads who just enjoyed coming up with difficult doctrines. They didn't codify our understanding of scriptural language with terms like the Trinity because they were arrogant, narrow-minded men who did not care about the average person. Rather, listen to how the 17th century Baptists summed up this doctrine. The doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon Him. See, they understand that who God is is foundational to Christianity. It was precisely because they understood that if we get God wrong, we can never be obedient to the Great Commission. And men could never hear a saving gospel. That the historic, it's that for that reason that the historic church worked diligently and often at their own peril to their reputation and lives to make God and his gospel clear. So I want to begin our understanding of God and his gospel by beginning with the person of the Father. Next week, the person of the Son. The week after that, the person of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the person of the Father by considering John 3.16. That was all really prelude to the next three weeks. As we look at John 3.16 and consider the Father, I want to look at really uh, three things. First, who the Father is, who the Father is. Second, what the Father has done, that is his work, his person, if you will, his work. And then third, why this matters to us. What are the implications of all this? And particularly, how does it, why does it matter to missions at all? So first, who the Father is. Look at John 3.16 
and let's slow down. Let's just slow down and consider a text that is very familiar to all of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Please note here that we are told God so loved the world. That he, that being God, gave his only son. In other words, we are dealing with God the Father. The God who has son. Who is he? Who is God the Father? He is God the creator. The sovereign Lord. The one who providentially works in all things. The judge. He is the God of all creation. He is the God who in the beginning spoke... And the universe leapt into existence. He is the God who formed and filled all creation. He is the God who said, let us make man in our image. He is the God who blessed man and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's the God who commanded Adam in the garden to eat from any tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil lest you die. He is the God who cursed the serpent and cursed Adam and Eve for their disobedience and sin, for eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's the God who gave the first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. Between your seed, the serpent's seed, And the woman's seed. You will bruise his heel. He will crush your head. That first gospel promise. He promised the seed of the woman who would come and save mankind. He is the God who narrowed that promise that was coming to the seed of the woman or all humanity. He narrowed that promise to the seed of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Or the family who came to be the nation we call Israel. He is the God who narrowed that promised seed even further to be from the tribe of Judah and from the house of David. So that promised man, that promised seed would come from the woman or from humanity. That promised seed would come from Abraham or from the nation of Israel. That promised seed would come from specifically the tribe of Judah and more specifically than that, the house of King David. He is the God who gave the covenants, the law, the patriarchs, the prophets, the priests, the kings, the sacrifices, and the tabernacle. Now, yes, he is the God who did all this through his son and by his Holy Spirit, because all the works of God are undivided, because we have one God. But we're focused today on what is eminently attributed to the person of the Father. And please pay attention to what Jesus is saying. He is the God who sent his Son. Thus he is God the Father. To be, uh, to have a Son means you are the Father. This isn't like hard, difficult math to figure out here, right? We get it. And Jesus wants us to understand something about his father. His father, look what he says. For God, the father, so loved 
the world. That he gave his only, and I think this is an unfortunate translation for the ESV, it should be his only begotten son. It's actually his monogenes, his, his only begotten one, or the only begotten son. The father, and I don't, don't ask me to explain this to you today, the father eternally begets the son. And I don't, I don't even want to get into that now, but that's the point of the language he's getting at. In other words, here's the point. The fa- it wasn't that there was a time in which the father was alone, and then he came up with a son. Hmm, I'm lonely. I'll have a son. That's not how it happened. The father has always been the father because he has always been begetting his son. And the father and the son have always shared in the fellowship of the Trinity because they have always been spirating, that word spirit, the Holy Spirit. Always. Just who God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten, His eternal Son. Now I want to ask two questions here. Who is the world? And why does God love the world? See, who is the world? So we know who the Father is. He's the one who gave His Son. But who is the world? And why does God love the world? So first question, who is the world? This word in Greek is this word cosmos. You guys will recognize that from cosmology or um, the cosmic, etc. This is talking about the universe or the world. And what do we mean here? The world here is not referring specifically to the physical planet. It's not. As, as in the first use of the, wor- of the word world in John 3.17, look there. For God did not send his son into the world. Now that's talking about the planet earth. To condemn the world, but in order the world might be saved through him. That last use of world there is not talking about the planet earth. You can tell that because Jesus didn't save like the oceans. And I, I know there's some people who would like that to be. But it's not what he did to come to save, Right? He's talking about people. Who is the world? The world is a reference to the people in the world he is saving. When God said, or when Jesus said, sorry, God so loved the world, he essentially said that the Father's love is set upon all of fallen humanity. His love is not, now hear this more specifically, his love is not limited by ethnic distinctions. God so loved Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles. He loves the nations. God so loved people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We see that understanding picked up in John 4 when the Samaritans declare that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He must be. He must be something more than just the Savior of the Jews because this Messiah has come to us, the Samaritans. He's the Savior of the world. In his promise to Abraham, God declared that he would send the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, to be a blessing to all nations. So God loved people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Fallen humanity. But here's a question, second question, why, why? Why does God so love the world? Why? Why does the Father love you? 
Was it because the Father looked down from heaven and saw something in you so beautiful, so admirable, so overwhelmingly compelling that he was just incited to love you? You just wooed him with your amazingness. Is that what happened? Really, the question we ought to ask is, why does the Father love sinners? Jesus tells us clearly here that God loves sinners. Paul says the same thing in Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves sinners. Why? And what's the ground of the Father's love for sinners? It's this. You ready for it? God is love. God is love. God is eternally and unchangeably love. God did not send Jesus so that he might love you. God sent Jesus because he loves you. God did not become loving when he created. Please hear that. God is love. He is holy, righteous, perfect, benevolent love. And God was not wooed to love, incited to love by something admirable or beautiful in the creature. God is love. God does not have love as something he appended to himself. God is love. It is who he is. God is eternally in loving fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And with regard to creation, God did not go out looking for something to love, something that might be worthy of his love. God created that which he loves. Look at 1 John. Keep your hand there in John 3. And look at 1 John and chapter 4. 1 John and chapter 4. And look at verse 8. As he's telling us that we know we've been born of God if we are those who actually love others. He grounds that knowledge of a way of assuring us. In other words, if you love the brothers, if you love others sacrificially, then that love in you has been created in you by the Holy Spirit. Um, And why would the Holy Spirit be doing that? Um, He's going to get at, look at verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why is that? Because God creates something in you if you know him. And so if you don't love, you don't know him. And why we know that? Because God creates in you something like himself. Because God is love. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world. So that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God or that we have first loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath bearer for our sins. See, God is love and God first loved us. We did not deserve his love. We're rebellious sinners who are hell-bent on eternal perdition. Yet God loved us. God loved us. 
And that brings us to our second point. Because God's love is not just some kind of, um, like our culture's love, some kind of nebulous approval of all things. He didn't look down from heaven and say, I approve of you. You do you. That's not what he said. Jesus was not on the cross saying, Father, let them do them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. God's love is defined here by what he's done, which leads to my second major point today. What did the Father do? What the Father did? Who the Father is? What the Father did? Go back to John 3.16. You've already seen some of it there in 1 John 4, but we'll just go back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The Father loved us, so the Father gave us his Son. Note what's fundamental to God's love. It is self-giving. It is self-giving. God loved, so God gave. And God gave his Son to save us. He gave his Son to save us. Not to endorse us, but to save us. Not to affirm us in our sin, but to save us from the certain consequences of our sin. Now, there are two truths I want you to note about this gift of the Son. Here's the first one. The gift of the Son was unmerited. And the second one is, the gift of the Son was eternally decreed. I want to look at that. The gift of the Son was unmerited. What did we do to merit or earn the Father's love gift of the Son? I'll give you the first clue. Nothing good. Nothing good. We sinned. We rebelled. We violated God's law, and we merited eternal life, excuse me, eternal death and damnation, or eternal life in hell, if you will, which we call eternal death, really. We had earned condemnation. This is why we need the Son to avoid perishing and to receive eternal life. Jesus came to save the world because the world was condemned already. Verse 17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. This means that apart from the Son, there is no eternal life. There is no salvation. That's why Jesus says later in John, verse 6 of chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The gift of the Son is necessary to our salvation. Faith in the Son is necessary to our salvation. Thus Jesus says that whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. Apart from faith in the Son, there is only, please understand this, apart from faith in the Son, there is only condemnation. That's it. Your neighbors, your family members, your co-workers, your friends. The unreached people groups of the world. If they do not trust in the Son, there is only condemnation. But please pay attention to this. God the Father 
decreed to send his son. And he sent his son, um, note, before you believed. He has to come before you can believe in him, right? He has to be promised, if you will, from the Old Testament perspective before you can believe in him. From our perspective, he has to have come before you could believe in him. He came before you did anything good. He came while you were still a sinner, a justly condemned sinner. He sent his son even before you were born. Now, that's just a matter of historical fact. He sent him before you were born to save you. What'd you do to merit that? That leads to my next assertion. The Father eternally decreed to give the Son for you. Paul says that the Father decreed to send the Son before the foundation of the world. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. In other words, the Father eternally decreed to create you, The Father eternally decreed to sustain you. And the Father eternally decreed to send Jesus to save you. And not only you, but everyone who would ever believe in every nation and tribe and tongue. And what motivated that? What motivated the Father to do all this? Was it some good he found in you? Was it some faith he found in you? No. It's that God is love. Listen to how John Calvin states this. It's beautiful. If you ask why the world has been created, why we have been placed in it to rule over the earth, why we are preserved in life to enjoy innumerable blessings, why we are endued with light and understanding, no other reason can be given except the free love of God. It was not only an immeasurable love that God did not spare his own son, that by his death he might restore us to life. It was also the most marvelous goodness which should fill our minds with the greatest wonder and amazement. Christ then is so illustrious and remarkable a proof of divine love toward us that whenever we look at him, he fully confirms the truth that God is love. I meet occasionally with a man who was an Islamic imam and the emir of Islam in our city. Some of you are aware of that. I just had um, breakfast with him two weeks ago, and I asked him about the biblical teaching, the Christian doctrine that God is love. And I asked him how he would reply to that, and he replied, God is not love. He said, God does love. He loves those who believe. He loves those who are repentant. He loves those who are obedient. And he only loves those people. God does not love the disobedient. God does not love the unrepentant. God does not love the unfaithful. Please hear this. In Islam, Allah has love that comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. In other words, the creature 
somehow arouses the love of Allah for him through his own good works and repentance and faith. This is because Allah is a single person God. Allah is a creator so that he might love. Hear that? He is a creator so that he might love. He is not love and therefore a creator. But the God of the Bible, the triune God who is, the God who is revealed most clearly in Jesus Christ and by the Spirit, is love. He is eternally in loving fellowship as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And out of the overflow of his love, he creates, sustains, and saves. Luther, Martin Luther, the, one of the great Protestant reformers, got at this in the Heidelberg Disputation that he wrote, um, I think circa 15, 16 to 18, right in that range. I think 15, 18. And he said this in number 28. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. And friends, that is such good news. Such good news. Finally, I want to look at some implications to all this, to our Christian worship and piety and practice, and thus to the work of missions. So um, I want to look at seven quick implications. Like seven, you just went through two points. But they're going to come quick. They're just implications. I want you to hear them. Because here's the question we really need to ask. How does knowing that the Father eternally decreed salvation out of his love for us and sent his Son to sinners like us affect our Christian lives and practice, particularly our missions practice? So let me give you seven quick applications or implications of this. The first is this. The saving love of God cannot be preached, nor can disciples be made, apart from proclaiming the triunity of God. You hear that? And baptizing people in that triune name. You cannot preach the gospel apart from the triunity of God. You cannot. You lose the triune nature of God. The gospel goes out with it. You have a different God and a different gospel. Period. You cannot preach Jesus Christ as the Son of God sent by the Father who loved us apart from preaching the God who is. A different God provides a different gospel. Listen to Surah. This is Surah 112 is from the Quran. Listen to what they say in Surah 112. They also will refer to in Islam as the, as the purity of the faith. In the name of God, the gracious, the merciful, say, now here's the confession. This is like the altar call for Islam. You ready? This is what you confess. What do we confess at our altar calls in American Christianity? Believe in, the Lord, in, in your heart that Jesus is Lord and, right? Confess your mouth, God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. Okay, you ready for Islam's? Say, he is God, the one. God, the absolute. He begets not. In other words, he has no son. He is not father. He is not father. He begets not. Fathers beget. He is not father. He begets not, nor was he begotten. He is not son. Sons are begotten. And there is none comparable to him. Do you understand? In the purity of Islamic faith, they deny Christian doctrine. Central. How are they to understand the gospel if they believe God does not have a son? How can they know God if they do not see him as father? The majority of the unreached people groups of the world we're talking about are Islamic. 
How can they know Jesus if they do not know him as God's son? How are they to believe the gospel if they do not understand that our triune Lord is love and that he loved them first? Folks, this is true for the average American who's basically some kind of moralistic, therapeutic deist. By that I mean they believe generally in a single-person God who wants them to be good and nice. And if they're good and nice, then they're going to get to heaven because their good works are going to outweigh their bad And on balance, they're generally good people, which means fundamentally, because they deny the Trinity, they deny grace. And they have a complete gospel of legalism or works because their God must be incited to love by the creature. You have to merit his kindness. You can't go out there with your neighbor and not start with who God is. And then what God has done. This leads to my second implication. The love of God humbles us. The love of God humbles us. He loved us, not we first loved him. And in Christ, listen, in Christ, love came down to save us. The love of the Father came down in the sending of the Son to be incarnate, crucified, and resurrected for us and our salvation. There are no, please hear this, there are no noble people out there seeking the true God. I don't mean there aren't people who are generally civil. You can have, and probably do have, neighbors who are civil, decent people. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there are no noble people in the true definition of nobility, those who are looking to our Lord God and worshiping him. There are no people out there who are seeking him as unbelievers. But there is the true God who loves them and is seeking them. Christianity is never the story of mankind seeking the true God. It is always the story of us hiding from him, from the garden at the fall, on the story of us hiding from him and of him coming down to seek and save the lost. Jesus did not say, the Son of Man has come to be sought and enticed and wooed by the lost. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. That is the nature of the Great Commission, isn't it? The Great Commission sends us to declare to the nations that in the Son, the love of the Father came down to save sinners. It's the Son of God sending us in the power of the Spirit to those who aren't looking for Him. Third, the love of God is analogous to the kind of love we offer. Please, the third implication. The love of God is analogous to the kind of love we offer. I say analogous because your love and God's love will never be the same. You understand that? I understand that. But by analogy, God's love is self-giving. His love seeks the benefit of the other, even at great cost to himself. His love is not based on merit in the other person, but really the virtue of love in the giver. And the fruit of the Spirit in our lives is this kind of love, love that sacrifices everything for the other, love that even seeks the good of one's enemies. 
They seek to do you harm. They seek to curse you. You seek to love them and bless them. That's what God has done for you. You cursed him, and in Christ he blessed you. Love seeks to, if you will, give and give and give for the other, whether they deserve it or not. And thus we joyfully open our pockets and our hearts and our hands and our homes, our very lives, for the other. For the other. Fourth implication, the love of God has been set on his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We are compelled by the love of God shown to us in Christ to proclaim the love of God in Christ to others. Paul will say the love of Christ compels me. This is not love set particularly on one ethnic group nor one nation. But God's, it's love for God's people among every tribe and tongue and nation. That's why Christ's church is never permitted to focus solely or merely on those across the street. Our concerns must also be for those across the world. America may be bound by national borders, but the kingdom of Christ is global. And so we care about our neighbors across the street, and we care about our neighbors in unreached people groups. And we don't have an option of which group we're going to love and give ourselves for. We love and give ourselves for them all. Fifth, the love of God is an assurance of provision. Fifth implication, the love of God is an assurance of provision. When we step out in faith, we do not know what the future holds. But we do know who holds the future. The Father who loved us and gave his Son for us. We do not need to be anxious. We don't need to be anxious. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor store up in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Rather than being anxious about these worldly concerns, we trust that the Father loves us, and we boldly seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that all these things will be added unto us. Sixth, The love of God is our consolation in persecution and suffering. Hear that? The love of God is our consolation, our comfort in persecution and suffering. We know that God is at work for our good and his glory due to his love for us. Right? His love never waxes nor wanes. That's why we know this quite well-known verse, Romans 8.28. Right? All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And what's his purpose? He goes on to state that, that we would become like his son. He's always working toward that end. He's elected us toward that end. He's called us toward that end. He's justified us toward that end. He will glorify us toward that end. The good that he's working out in you is that you become like his son. The good that he's working out in you is not that he's going to give you everything you hoped for when you're going through tough times. The good that he's working out for you is that he's going to give you something so much 
better than what you are hoping for in tough times. He's giving you himself. He's making you like his son. God has set his electing love upon us in Christ. And Paul goes on to say, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And since this is true, we know that nothing, as Paul will go on to say, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our consolation in suffering and persecution. And seventh, finally, the love of God in Christ for us, the love of God in Christ for us causes us to love our brothers in Christ in such a way that we're committed to missions as a task of the church and not just some isolated individuals. See, the Rimsteads are here. I'm sure you're going back soon probably, right? Next few months. To Maliali. They are not just some isolated individuals who walked into a conference somewhere or perspectives class somewhere and probably heard someone like Brad Buser or Brooks Buser or somebody and thought to themselves, my heart is warmed, I'm going to go on missions and we're going to do this all on our own. They are people who understood that Christ commands his church to engage in missions and they are members of the church who are going out. Missions is a task of the church. Listen to how even John addresses this in 3 John 5, and I'll just finish here. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers that they are, these missionaries is what he's talking about, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles or the unbelievers. Therefore, we ought, we ought, hear this, because we love these people and because we love the name of Christ being announced in the world, we ought to support people like these, that they may be worker, that we may be workers or fellow workers for the truth. How do we join the Rimsteads in making Christ known among the Mali Ali? We support people like these because God loves us in Christ. And he is, by his spirit, creating that love for himself and for others in us. And so we love the missionaries who are out proclaiming his name. And we love the Maliali people to whom they're proclaiming him, whether we know them or not. See, may the unmerited love of the Father in the giving of his Son for us and our salvation inform our worship and our piety and our practice And may that love be known in every tribe and tongue and nation through us. Let me pray.